Today's scripture passage comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Good morning, Christ Church family and guests. A delight uh, to see you here this morning. Before we dive into the teaching uh, this day, I want to take just a moment and give comment to something that Brad uh, prayed a moment ago. On the campus of Asbury University uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, the university went into its normal chapel service Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. And that worship gathering that began on 10 at 10 a.m. Uh, Wednesday morning, uh, as of this moment, 14 minutes till nine on this Sunday, that chapel service has not stopped. It has gone 24-7 uh, since 10 o'clock Eastern time uh, of this week on Wednesday. And they are experiencing what we would call a sustained manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their midst on that campus. We are also uh, delighted not only that God is moving in this way, but that Dr. Tim Tennant, who is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, which is right across the street from Asbury University, and that campus is also experiencing, or the students there, experiencing renewal in the presence, manifest presence of God in these hours. Uh, in the sovereignty of God, Dr. Tim Tennant is scheduled to be with us in this pulpit next Sunday, and we are thankful for that, and I want to just raise your awareness to not only be praying for the Asbury University campus, Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, thankful that Dr. Tennant will be with us in light of all things that God seems to be doing, but pray in this hour that the presence of God manifested in this way will spread across our nation, college campuses, uh, and beyond. So let's be mindful of praying these things. Now, isn't it interesting that our topic uh, in this season is the person of the Holy Spirit? And this morning, I want to spend a few minutes speaking with you around the topic of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to begin by declaring the following. You were not designed to do life and the Christian life on your own. It was never God's intent. You were designed, listen, listen, loved ones, I believe that this is, well, we certainly want to preach objective truth. I mean, that, that's a given, but as objectively as I know how to put it, you were designed to live in the presence of God. You say, Pastor, why do you say that? Well, in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve fell, creation existed in the fullness of the presence of God. 
We know the fall affected that reality in a negative way, diminished living, yes, in the omnipresence, but not in the manifest presence of God. And so we recognize in light of the fall that God Almighty sent the Son so that not only our sins could be forgiven, but so that we could be reconciled to God. And we we also recognize also to participate in the presence of God. The people of God have always been a people of God's presence. When you look at the Exodus and God leading by a fire by night, or excuse me, cloud by day, fire by night, and establishing, building the tabernacle, the temple, the people of God have always been a people of God's presence. We get to the New Testament, the scripture describes that you are now, you and I, in Christ, we are God's temple, that God dwells within us. And so we're aware in light of the passage that uh, Brad read this morning, that God has already initiated a restoration work of our lives being in Christ. And, And so what we're aware of is that if you could live the Christian life on your own, then God would never have needed to send the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we, I'm not preaching yet. Here we go. (laughs) The book of Ephesians that Brad read from is an unusual book. It's the only letter Paul writes in which he's not having to address controversy in the church. And as he writes this letter, he's able to write about things that really help a church grow and develop into maturity. In chapter one, he talks about praying for them, for a spirit of revelation to rest upon the church. He talks about them being sealed with the person of the Holy Spirit. In chapter two, he talks about salvation, that you once were children of wrath, now you're children of God because by grace you've been saved through faith. Chapter three, he begins going into these dimensions of describing laboring for unity and, and giving no opportunity for the devil as our lives are lived in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we get into chapter five and there's so much more we could say than I'm saying now. He talks about principles of marriage and how a marriage is not a commodity, but a marriage between a man and a woman is a covenant. There's a way that the covenant functions optimally where it flourishes. And he also talks about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now the question that this raises for us goes like this. Don't all Christians have the Holy Spirit? And the answer to the question is yes. But as I shared with you recently on a Wednesday night, that's really not the question that Paul is dealing with in this passage. The question is not, do you as a believer have the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? And so, If you're a believer, he already has residency in your life, but the difference is that we want to give him presidency. He's already on the throne, but he desires to reign and give life to the throne, the throne of your heart. And so, loved ones, when you came to Christ, and there's lots of different semantics for that, 
When you came to Christ, when you were justified by faith in the person of Christ, you received pardoning grace for your sins or saved, whatever terminology that you uh, express coming to know Christ. When you came to Christ, you did not lose your old nature. You didn't lose your flesh. Your flesh still lives. By the way, if you've ever... If you ever open your Bible, you might notice when anytime you see the word flesh, the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about our flesh. You might, might, you might have picked up on that. But if you've been a Christian very long, you're, you're aware that your flesh still, it still seeks to have dominion in your life, your, your old life, your old flesh got kicked and dragged into your new life and it doesn't want to let go without a fight. That's why so many Christians, and it's, this would not necessarily be unique to you, this is true for all of us, so many Christians struggle with a lot of the same propensities that we may have had before we became Christians. And the only remedy for that is crucifixion with Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And you, I would remind you of Galatians 2.20 where Paul wrote this in a different way when he said a verse many of you could quote, I've been crucified with Christ. And what he's referring to is that I now in my new life recognize that I now choose for God's purposes rather than my preferences. I may not feel like forgiving that person, but I choose to because I'm crucified with Christ. I choose for God. It, it may not be easy sacrificing so that this unreached people group is reached, but I choose for God. And then Paul goes under, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And, and what he's pointing out is the presence of God in the life of a believer. It's no longer I who lives, but now there's a presence in me that didn't exist before I came to know Christ. And now the life I live, it's different. I live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith, my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not only that Christ lives in you and we want to make much of that, but it's how he lives in you that matters. And so the Christian life loved ones, is a supernatural life. And as, a, as a, the Christian life being a supernatural life, we need supernatural power to live it. And that's the way God designed it. And so Paul writes these words that tap right into this reality. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to share some things that you probably have heard before, but but maybe not. Here, here, there's the first one. When this was written, when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, this is written in what's called the imperative mood. Now what that means is, is that this is a command. This is not written like, as if it's an option for a Christian. Now the, the power behind that is a loving power. It's God's love for you. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Paul wrote this, he also uses a powerful metaphor. He uses the powerful metaphor of a person who might drink too much alcohol. And so it's a little bit of, I acknowledge, there's a little bit of awkwardness to the metaphor, but, but just bear with me for a moment. Because if a person drinks too much alcohol, this won't be a note you take they become inebriated, okay? I know we all get that. 
And so we're aware that a person who drinks too much alcohol becomes impaired. Sometimes we refer to a person who drinks too much alcohol as being under the influence. They get pulled over by a police officer and the police officer has them get out of the car and, and do things that just simply demonstrate good eye-hand coordination. They're invited to walk a straight line and then the police officer often determines whether a breathalyzer has to be administered. And they're under, the, the point is, is that there's a determination if a person is under the influence, their judgment is impaired, their uh, ability to react quickly has been impaired. And the apostle Paul is using this to illustrate the same way a man or a woman can be under the influence of alcohol and it can influence their actions. A believer has the opportunity to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so once again, in another way in scripture, we see the Christian life is a supernatural life and we need supernatural power to live it out. Now, there's another way that the scriptures illustrate, actually many ways, we covered many of those last week, if you remember, but there are other ways that the scriptures illustrate the infilling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Here's another way. The, the Bible also describes or uses a phrase called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to say a word about what it isn't. Um, I have great love and respect for many of our Pentecostal sisters and brothers. It's possible some of us here in this sanctuary may have come out of Pentecostal background. In Pentecostal theology, there is an affirmation of the baptism, the infilling of the Holy Spirit with one unique nuance. And I'm going to cover this more thoroughly later in the series, but the nuance is that in those circles, a part of what it means to be Pentecostal is the belief that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that you must speak in tongues. Now, I do not believe that that's biblical. And what I mean by that is that I think the scriptures substantiate that a man or a woman can be filled with the Holy Spirit and they may or may not manifest that particular gift. But I need to, to just validate that so that we clarify the following. When we use the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit in church history, it's not until the last 50 to 70 years that that seemed to be associated exclusively with Pentecostals. I would just simply remind you that it's a biblical phrase and it needs to be redeemed by all Christians because it's a biblical phrase. Now let me first illustrate from scripture how we uh, see this phrase utilized. John the Baptist utilizes it multiple times. In Matthew 3, John 1, Mark 8, he refers to Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We talked about that last week. Then in the book of John, that is he, I'm reading the latter part of the verse, Jesus is he who is, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And again, in Mark 1, verse 8, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we see this again in the book of Acts. And so we're aware that while Christians are in the upper room and praying and waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
The scripture reads, while staying with them, he, that is Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized water with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, most of us in this sanctuary know that the word baptize, in the original Greek, it's baptizo, the word baptize, what comes to mind is people experiencing water baptism. In fact, the word literally means to be immersed. Even though as Methodists, we practice sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. But we recognize the word means to be immersed, and that's good. We need, so we understand that what's being said here in reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be being immersed in the Holy Spirit. But in biblical times in the Middle East, there was a semantic, or shall we say, sometimes theologians call it a hermeneutic, that in the original context, there was a cultural understanding of how this word was utilized that I think helps us understand the richness of its meaning. So we know that back in biblical days, people lived much closer to the earth. It was agricultural based economy. People lived much closer to their craft. Well, one of the crafts, one of the expressions of artistry in biblical times is people were much more familiar with the way fabrics were dyed. And one of the common understandings in biblical and Middle Eastern culture with the word baptize was, and I'm going to do this carefully, this is a glass bowl of purple dye here. I'm gonna handle that carefully because I don't want to get baptized today. But fabrics that were dipped in dye, it was referred to as a means of fabrics undergoing a baptism, if you will. And so just as I dipped this fabric in this purple dye, it represents a baptizo. And people, when they heard the term baptize, the image that would come to mind was not merely John the Baptist baptizing people into repentance. The image that would come to mind was the very nature of the colors of fabric being transformed through an inebriation, an immersion. And so the color, the very colors, the very nature of substance would be changed. And so when you hear this phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're really referring to the very colors of our nature being transformed. Reminds me of a lady I knew years ago. And I remember she confided in her pastor and said, Pastor Paul, I have a hard time being in the same room with her. I have a hard time loving her. I have a hard time relating to her. And so often when we're in the same room, I just stay over in my area. I just don't get around her. This is a lady who had professed Christ. But then she had an encounter with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I quote, this is a quote right out of her mouth. Now that I have been filled with the Holy Spirit, I marvel at how I love others effortlessly. What I used to have to try so hard to do now just comes naturally. 
Well, it's coming naturally because she's living supernaturally. Doesn't mean that we don't have times where we die to self and it may be a challenge, but what I'm illustrating for you is that normal Christianity is spirit-filled Christianity. Normal Christianity is spirit-empowered Christianity. Now look with me at these passages of scripture that illustrate believers out of uh, the scriptures. Think about Stephen in the book of Acts. The Bible tells us this about Stephen as a Christian. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 6. Or think about the apostle Peter. Do you remember Peter, that he's the one that denies Jesus three times? He's the one who has an impulsive moment and cuts a soldier's ear off when he's having an outburst of anger because he doesn't have self-control. But after Pentecost, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, as the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, Peter stands, stands and he proclaims the most profound sermon in the book of Acts. Peter stands so profoundly, he's in prison, but yet in prison, he remains courageous and able to stand on his convictions. He's no longer a coward. There's a greater power in him than any power outside of him. And while this is not in the biblical text, early tradition tells us that Peter was even crucified upside down as he was willing to suffer for the name of the Lord. Think about the disciples. The Bible tells us in Acts 13, 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Think about the apostle Paul. The book of Acts tells us that Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about the early church. Acts 4, 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And perhaps more than anyone else, we need to stop, ponder, and reflect upon the person of Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, verse 1. Normal Christianity is spirit-filled Christianity. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the letter to Ephesus, he knew that, that the church there had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's outlined in chapter 1. It's referenced in chapter 2. But he was concerned if they had the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is why he addresses the church in the way he does in chapter 5. Now, loved ones, there is one more thing we need to point out in this verse. Here it is. If a person drinks too much alcohol and they are under the influence, they're going to sober up unless they keep on drinking. Now that was not an instruction, you do know that. <laughs> but you follow the parallel. When a believer drinks of the Holy Spirit, I need to keep drinking to stay under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is why scholars tell us that this verse actually translates in two ways. Not only does it translate be, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it translates be you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ongoing action. There's an infilling of the Holy Spirit, but there's an ongoing drinking of the Holy Spirit in staying under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So this is a part of why Paul, in verses 19 and 21, 
he goes, what, for some of us, it could feel like a sudden tangent. You know, but he goes, suddenly says this, address one another, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's what he's doing, church. He's sharing a both and, here it is. He is sharing that a part of the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that your affections for Christ are awakened and a man or a woman will exalt him in song. But he's also sharing a prescription because a part of stirring and drinking of the Holy Spirit is actually engaging in magnifying God in worship through song with hymns, songs, spiritual songs, by the way, I'm going to throw this in. This isn't in the notes. I'm just going to say this. If I were the devil, and dear God, I'm, I'm not, but if I were, one of the tactics that I would exercise toward a church is that when it's time to worship with a hymn or a song, I would just help people to be as left brain and stoic as possible because it inhibits the work of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk more about that in the next part about how not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so some scholars with this verse speak that, and say that singing songs, spiritual songs are the result of the Spirit-filled life and some say it's what stirs the work of the Spirit in the development of a man or a woman who is drinking of the Spirit, and I would say, convictionally, it's a both and for the glory of God. Now, before we close this morning, this is a little awkward for me. I shared a story with you months ago about church planting. I shared the story of a season in my life where I wanted to get out of the ministry. I, I shared about our car, uh, the, the 240DL Volvo that I bought at a price that was too good to be true. It had been submerged underwater, it died. I nicknamed the car Lazarus, you might remember that. And I also said to you, and I don't expect that you remembered this, but I shared with you that wasn't all the story. In that first church plan, I had the ideals of what it was going to look like. But in those early years, it didn't look like what I had hoped. And the problem was not that God wasn't willing, but the problem was me. See, I was born again. I knew Jesus, knew the call on my life. And God knew just how to arrange circumstances and allow circumstances in our lives so that I would be appropriately broken. And when I shared with you that at that time in the United Methodist Church, there wasn't a lot of money in our conference, the call of God was very strong to plant a church and we took a $7,000 pay cut and we were living below the poverty line and we were in an unfurnished apartment with two TV trays, uh, a TV, TV stand, two lawn chairs and a mattress on the floor. I know that seems unimaginable to some of you. And planting a church with two young boys and 
It was tough. And I, I remember one night, as I'm building relationships with people in the community, and I got invited, Missy and I and the boys were invited to a party, a get-together. And we thought, what a great time to get to know people in the community. And I, I remember when I pulled my car up in front of this house, and I opened the door, and this will be a little undignified, and I just asked for grace as I share this, okay? But I heard this shout that went, woo! And I looked at Missy and I thought, I haven't heard that kind of shout since a fraternity party in college. <laughs> and we go to the front door and the host opens the door, music's blaring. He goes, Paul, glad you're here, man. The kegs are over here. The margaritas are over here. Y'all come on in. And I remember we went in and just built as many relationships as we could. But when we got back to the car, Later that night, Missy looks across the top of the, I remember at the top of Lazarus, she looking right at me and she goes, and my wife, please understand, my wife's a godly woman, all right? But she looks at me and she says, Paul, I said, yeah, this is never gonna work. There were nights where I would lay on the laundry and go, God, you've got to do something. But the problem was that I had my ideals up here, my own self-confidence in what I thought I could do was where I was putting my trust. I went to a, a meeting in downtown Huntsville and there was this lady named Kay and she's an intercessor. At that time in my life, I didn't even know what an intercessor was. I, I, but, but she was an intercessor. I didn't understand what that meant at the time. And, and she said, Paul, how, thing, how are things going with you? I said, I, I don't know. I'm not even sure I'm going to be in the ministry next week. It's really tough. And I started list, listing some things that weren't going right and trying to get this church off the ground. And she did something so unusual. She, she grabbed me by the face and started, she went, Paul, that's so good. God is breaking you. And, and there's something good coming. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. I was just, but she saw something in prayer. And in an odd way, there was something that I, I can't explain, but deep down inside, I thought she's, there's something to what she's saying. And we don't have time for me to go into all the detail. You do understand when I said God was breaking me that biblical brokenness is not a nervous breakdown. That's not what biblical brokenness is. Biblical brokenness, and remember the scripture says God loves a broken and contrite heart. Biblical brokenness is surrender. And even though I knew Jesus, this pastor wasn't surrendered. But when I surrendered, he came. When I surrendered, the Spirit filled me. And as I surrendered and the Spirit filled me with his love, with his joy, 
with a power that's not my own, things begin to change. God's far more interested in what he does in you than what he does through you. Because if you'll allow him to do what he's willing to do in you, the through you will take care of itself. Because he's the one who's doing the, producing the fruit. What I want to do this morning is a little different. I think there are those of you who have gathered here today and you're hungry. You're hungry for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to open the altars up for you to come and just simply position your heart and life. God, fill me. I want to drink this morning of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that being filled with the Holy Spirit, if I could remind you, is actually, it's God's command. He's, more, he's willing to do this. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is for every believer. And God does the filling. But what I, I learned, this, is, this was my experience, is that Paul, I can't be full of myself and be full of God at the same time. And that was the brokenness that he, had, that he took me through. But I believe that there are many of you that are hungry. Now you may ask, why am I inviting you to an altar this morning? Well, I think it's like when the lady touched the hem of Jesus' garment. There was something that Jesus honored in her faith that was special. She stepped out of a crowd and, and Jesus honored that. And, and, and also she, she touched the hem of his garment. She just moved in faith that Jesus, I'm, I'm going to press through the obstacles of what my peers may think and declare that it's you that ultimately I know that I want. And I'm willing to do that publicly. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. If the altars fill up, then I would remind you it's okay if you're elderly, I want you at the altar. But I want to remind you that the persecuted church all over the world is kneeling on concrete and dirt. And if the altar fills up and we need to use some of the tile space or this altar up here, that's fine. But as we sing this closing hymn, just I want to encourage us to move in faith and just simply say to God, God, fill me. Now the way you're filled with the Holy Spirit is the same way we come to Jesus. We come in a spirit of confession, repentance, faith in Jesus, but it's through Jesus that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said this, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want to invite you to come and to drink this morning, to move in faith. Phillips Brooks once said, prayer is not overcoming some or conquering an obstacle with God, it's stepping into the willingness of God. God's willing to fill you. And I want to encourage you to respond to him this morning. Would you stand to your feet? Let's stand and let me pray for just a moment. So Lord, you stood at a banquet once and you asked the question, is anyone thirsty? And I don't know whether you paused or not, but you might have. And then you said these words, let him come to me and drink. And so, Lord, would you meet with us now over these emerging moments? 
as many come and we kneel. And let us, during this closing song, just posture our lives publicly to drink. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.